0: Welcome to episode 179 of Telepractice Today with Kim Dutro Allen and Dr. Todd Houston.
1: Welcome back to another episode. I wanted to share this week the importance of having a backup plan <laughs> when you're doing mm. teletherapy. I got on this morning, actually, and went to log on and my screen share wasn't working. And I just like all the color drained from my face because my <laughs> entire day was planned around doing a green screen activity mm. and um and a great green screen activity from Google speech. They have a Halloween to remember one where they go to all these different houses and trick or treat and that was my whole day was planned around that and then my screen share didn't work. So, Mm -hmm. and I had kids coming in right then, so I couldn't jump on. So I found something that was on the platform that um, I use on presence platform. They have a Mr. Potato Head. So we made Mr. Potato Head instead for the first two sessions and then, troubleshooting. First thing to do in troubleshooting, turn it off and turn it back on. 90% <laughs> of the time it works. So I did. I rebooted my computer and look, lo and behold, my screen share was working again. That's all I had to do. But uh, for those first couple of sessions before I had time to do that, that was good to know the things. Okay, if I can't do this, what am I going to do instead? And just having a couple of those ideas in your back pocket.
0: And I bet the Kids probably loved Potato Head. They did.
1: They loved it. We got some great language out of it, great turn-taking and labeling. It, it worked great, but f- for the few seconds, I was wondering <laughs> what I was going to do. That's
0: when that experience kicks in. It's like, right? I got this.
1: <laughs> but I did. My, my aide at the school also said, she's like, I got Play-Doh if we can't do anything else. So... <laughs> So that's that's a good backup too. Have some hands on things at the school as well. and then you know, if you have a kid that's just not paying attention at all to the um computer or anything, you're like, okay, let's let's pull out the toys, and that's a good thing to consider as well,
0: yeah, exactly. I believe just this past week we were having some real glitches with the system that we're using where I am at the hospital children, Akron Children's Hospital. We're still troubleshooting some things, and I wish we could have found a different way around it, but we still haven't. So, uh, technology is wonderful when everything works. Right. But at some point, it won't. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, and we're still troubleshooting the issue. So, on today, we have Dr. Tiffany Williams, who's going to talk about our words matter and her background and experience with telepractice.
1: This episode is brought to you by Thera Platform. If you're a therapist in private practice looking to spend more time with clients and less time on admin tasks, it may be time to consider automation software. TheraPlatform is an all-in-one EHR, practice management, and teletherapy software built specifically for therapists, and it's designed to automate day-to-day tasks. TheraPlatform offers a free 30-day trial with no credit card required. Visit theraplatform.com today.
0: Well, Tiffany, uh, excuse me, Dr. Williams, Dr. Tiffany Williams, Welcome to the podcast. Would you mind sharing how you became a speech language pathologist?
2: Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me on today. So, I always knew, like a lot of speech therapists, I think I always wanted to help people. I knew I wanted to help in some capacity. When I was in high school, um, my cousin was hit by a car and he spent weeks in a coma. He had brain swelling. He ended up at Children's Hospital in Atlanta, and I remember spending time there with him um, as he was recovering, and he, you know, really went through a long recovery process. And I remember seeing all the clinicians and therapists coming in, working with him. Of course, he had PTOT speech, um, learning how to speak again, how to walk again, just basic things. And I remember I kept thinking, I want to do this, but I wanted to be a physical therapist. So I graduated high school, started off at Florida State. And I was like, yes, I want my major to be physical therapy. I was very certain about it. And then they gave me the printout of the classes that you have to take to be a physical
0: therapist.
2: And I saw all of those math classes, and that is not my strength at all. And I said, oh, I I, got to go back to the drawing board. (laughs) What I'm not going to do is set myself up for failure. Or like this huge struggle paying out-of-state tuition prices. That's not what I'm going to do. So um, my aunt is a speech-language pathologist. And she's Mm -hmm. worked in the school. So I shadowed her in the schools for a while. And I thought, okay, this is really great. I took the intro to communication disorders course. And then I was hooked. And I was like, this is exactly what I want to do. I'm helping people. I've always been super interested in the way people say Words I can hear someone talk and, and remember, you know, where I heard them or like that voice sounds so familiar. I I know this, this voice. So the math was minimal, which I appreciated (laughs) for sure. So that is what got me to communication disorders. And I have been in this field now for 17 years, which seems like eons ago, but it has, it's been great. It's been great.
0: And you went to was, was if correct me, Valdosta, Valdosta yeah. State. Sorry. Mm.
2: So I started off at Florida State, and I did two years there, and then I finished my bachelor's at Valdosta State University in Georgia, and then mm-hmm. went on and continued and got my master's degree from there as well. So in a roundabout way, I kind of found speech pathology, but it always, you know, the the nexus of it was wanting to help. Help people, so yeah,
1: and they're not out. wanting to do math. <laughs> not. Even in my current job I'm now, with, I'm like, with you there.
2: <laughs> how did yeah? So I, I I know my strong suits, and that that wasn't it. I can write a paper. I can write you a ten thousand page paper, easy breezy. Put some algebra in front of me, just not my thing. So. Yeah. This was, I can calculate a birth date, you know, for the assessment. Yes. And,
1: yep. good. Yep. And, and, and some percentages, if it's a good round number. <laughs> that's about I always it. take
2: my data out of 10 or 20 because that's yep. math. And I can do that in my head.
0: Right. I just taught my grad students how to calculate the age and how to borrow yeah. and the years and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and they, they raise their hand. You know, there's an app for that. You know, all right. Like, I was yeah, just going to tell you but that. You, Tom but you I'm need to know this. <laughs> <laughs> now, your your story sounds like my wife, who who went to Ohio University, was wanting to be a physical therapist, and then I think one of her first classes was zoology, and it was all of the sort of genetics. You know what genetic combinations ends up with? You know, a goat with three spots versus two spots and a white goat and a black goat and I mean all this stuff she's like ah (laughs) she ran (laughs) out (laughs) she said nope that's a little too much of the detail for me I need to find something else and then she had a friend who was in in speech uh communication disorders undergrad so so same kind of reaction but just a little different um so how? What was some of your experiences prior to getting into telepractice or when did telepractice sort of come along?
2: So telepractice has been in my experience since 2017. So leading up to that time, I've worked in public schools, private practice clinics, SNFs, assisted living, home health for adults, pediatrics. Um, the youngest child that I worked with has been 17, 18 months old. And that's when I really found a love for that age group because I always invited the parents into my sessions and Mm -hmm. having them there, whether the child hadn't wanted nothing to do with me and only wanted to be with the parent. Mm -hmm. um, I felt a sense of knowledge sharing. So I was able to show parents how to model sounds for their child how to prompt their child to maybe say different words or at least approximate different words and so i found that once they understood what i did in therapy the buy-in from them was much greater and so the payoff was greater because they were only coming to see me for two three times a week for half an hour maybe and they're home much more than that and so the parents being able to understand what we do in therapy And I feel like a gift of mine is to be able to break down the clinical side of what we do into very approachable, everyday routine type of activities for parents to do at home. Mm
0: -hmm. And so
2: that is when I I knew the younger kiddos were my heart for for sure. So um, I've worked in many different settings and I found my way into a Head Start program when I worked in Virginia for the public schools there. And those little two, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, I will take those any day over my short stint that I did in middle school. And it was the longest (laughs) six weeks of my life.
1: (laughs) Oh, I have both in one day.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It it takes a special social therapist. Yeah, I have
1: to change my personality halfway through the day to work with older kids but yes I agree I like the the little or the better
2: definitely Mm -hmm. they're like little sponges they soak up everything they're ready to just absorb it all you know it comes with the behavior of course managing that times but Mm -hmm. they're just little sponges and so I really really enjoyed the time in Head Start and that's when I found out about their policy council that they have where the founders of Head Start have a, a mandate that each Head Start program have a policy council, which are mm-hmm. parents, family members, caregivers that come together as part of this council engage in very meaningful ways to help make that program better for the children and the families that it serves. And so when I saw that, I set in on the policy councils just to observe. And I loved how that level of engagement went beyond just your traditional homework packet or worksheets to do at home like the parents felt like their voices were being heard and the things that they were saying were being implemented and I truly believe in my heart of hearts at the end of the day as people we want to be seen we want to be heard and we want to know that we matter and I felt like that program that policy council with that that head start program really helped parents feel those three things and that just kind of blew my mind, which led me to wanting to pursue a Ph.D. Because mm-hmm. um, that was, I, after I got my master's at more school, I was like, no, thank you. <laughs> so I definitely, I moved on to um, George Mason University. I was still working mm-hmm. full-time in the schools and started the Ph.D. program. Working full-time and taking classes two, three nights a week is a challenge like, yep. that is a, <laughs> a big ask but um so my phd is in education with a primary emphasis in early childhood education and a secondary emphasis in multilingual multicultural education a lot of times i share that with people and they ask me well, what other languages do you speak none <laughs> <else>. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> But just understanding that second language like language acquisition, yeah. mm-hmm. understanding, you know, sort of that silent period, because as you know, Head Start services families from low socioeconomic backgrounds. And from my experiences, a lot of brown black children, bilingual children, sometimes children who don't speak any English at all. You know? And so that really drew me to wanting to, to pursue my PhD with those emphasis areas. So, It was quite a feat. And during that time, I had my son. So now you're working full time and you have a new baby and you're still taking classes. It was a memorable time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That is one way to put it.
0: Yes, I understand. For for
1: sure.
2: So I finished up that program. um, I just successfully defended my PhD actually during the pandemic. So. Prior to defending it, um, I started teletherapy because I had my son. I wanted to stay home. I didn't want to take on full-time hours just yet. And that being in teletherapy afforded me the opportunity to do that. And this was before, you know, all of these digital materials that we have now that kind of grew out of the pandemic. So I was really sourcing a lot of materials, myself scanning things. Into the computer to use as PDFs for sessions, just really kind of figuring it out as I as I went along, and it was a really great experience. And I saw similar progress with the students I worked with than as compared to when I worked with students in person. So I have been doing teletherapy since then, and I I like it. I enjoy it. It gives me flexibility in my work hours. I do have licenses in other states, so just you know hearing experiences of kids that live across the country you know i'm in georgia so I'm working with kids in california and texas and washington state is just I, I really i enjoy it a lot so it seemed fitting when mm-hmm. i needed to defend my dissertation via zoom because the pandemic was going <laughs> on i was very thankful for um having started teletherapy so using zoom to defend my dissertation was A breeze, because I have been doing it by then for a couple of years. Yeah.
0: So if you didn't didn't want to answer the question they were asking you, I think you froze. What was that again?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly.
0: We seem to have a bad connection. I didn't quite hear your question.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Technology glitches can play a a positive role when you need a little extra time to think. Yes,
0: exactly. Exactly. (laughs) <laughs> well, my my story is I had finished basically defending my PhD. We were wrapping up. The committee was happy. Everyone was, like, shaking hands and stuff. And, and they said, okay, does anyone have any questions kind of thing? And one little hand went up in the corner. It was my wife. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and she almost became my ex-wife at that point <laughs> and she asked the hardest question of the whole time i was there with my committee and it just led to this snowballing effect of one question after another from my committee and this and then we're going deeper and deeper and off on these tangents and like 45 minutes later we finally get back to uh, ending the the defense and i just wow. glared at her <laughs>
2: oh wow
0: i think yeah. she actually had to take another car home i I drove home by myself someone else <laughs> had to bring her home i was like i just can't talk right now go away
2: yeah. <laughs> just a little moment to yourself to come down from what just happened yes yeah.
0: so so yeah. it was my wife who thought she was being helpful that ended up kind of derailing it it for a little bit (laughs) so yes fun times fun times uh defending a dissertation kim you are next
1: i am next with my story because you know my story
0: no, oh, you're, you're for a PhD for a
1: dissertation. I know. But I did. I when I defend my master's thesis, mm-hmm. I made the mistake of putting a statistician on my defense committee. Mm-hmm. And he got up in the middle of my defense and drew on the board of how I should have run my statistics. Oh, <laughs> and Todd my- was there. so. <laughs> oh, wow. That is wow (laughs) yeah yeah. but then after the word I tried to do it the way that he told me to and I was like there are too many variables it wouldn't have even worked the way that he was telling me to do it
0: exactly we just ignored him
2: yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) based on my experience with math I chose a purely Qualitative, <laughs>
0: no
2: <situation. laughs> statistics involved. Those two classes, oh, that was a struggle for sure. So, yeah. qualitative research for sure for me. <laughs> so you're next.
1: yes okay.
0: she's gonna be next. Um, <laughs> so, with your experience, uh, you've developed uh, our our words matter, and with your focus on that relationship between parents and and the school. Mm-hmm. let's talk more about that and what you found in your research maybe and and what you're trying to do with sure. this approach
2: sure so with my time spent at head start servicing kiddos there and prior to that having spent most of my time in the k-12 schools in more affluent areas where I lived I really saw that disparity between parents who know their parental rights regarding right. special education mm-hmm. and one's who and the ones that did, they used it and they got what they wanted, whether they had an advocate there with them or not. Parents who didn't know their parental rights when it comes to special ed, um, they really defer to the teachers a lot of times mm-hmm. and just let the committee kind of guide the discussion. And I'm sitting across the tables wanting to say, just say I want my child evaluated. That's all you have to say is stick mm-hmm. to that sentence. That's it. Those are the magic words. Yeah. But when you don't know the rules of the game, you, you can't play the game. Yeah. So right. um, when I looked at my my d- my dissertation research, I was living in El Paso, Texas at the time. And having moved from Virginia to El Paso, I had to revamp my dissertation focus because I wanted to interview Head Start parents. I had made good relationships with the district there. And moving to El Paso, I didn't know anyone there. And I wasn't getting any traction with being a stranger and trying to enter a school district that I have no experience in. Um, So I had to just pivot a little bit. And I found by volunteering in a Head Start classroom at a local elementary school that there's such a great, I find it unique kind of situation there in El Paso where a lot of the people who are born there, raised there, go to school there, attend, you know, Um, college there, have their families, many generations living there in El Paso. And of course, with Spanish being a predominant language in the city, I thought, okay, so in the schools, typically you see the teaching demographic not matching up with the student demographic, right? Right. But in El Paso, the teachers were Latinx backgrounds in most cases, they spoke Spanish, Either they were first generation or second generation. So they knew the immigrant experience and the demographics of the Mm -hmm. students and their families match that too. So I thought they must really be connecting with each other. These teachers and families, they come from similar backgrounds. They must really be connecting. So that was the crux of my dissertation um, question. So I interviewed K through three, K through third grade teachers in small groups. And we did two rounds of interviews and really... Peel back the layers of their own personal identity, the intersectionality of their identities and how they felt like that matched up with the families and children that they served, and how they were making those connections. So I thought that they would have these super deep connections and turns out they didn't really see how special Mm -hmm. it was to have that Mm -hmm. teaching demographic match that family. Because that's what, that's normal to do. You know, it's right. just every day, right. That's what they've grown up in. And so having them see the layers of their personality and their identity, I mean, and matching that up with the family's experiences in their classrooms. Like, I'm first generation, and I know, you know, the immigration process. And so I can talk to my child's, my students' family members about that, too, and connect with them. is really like a light bulb moment for them, which I found very interesting. Um, so out of the 20 teachers that I interviewed, um, only one identified as white. And it was just it was a very unique and in-depth research experience for me. So
0: mm-hmm.
2: after that experience, coupling it with the experience of the disparity between the parents with at Head Start versus the affluent, um, the schools in affluent areas, I thought to myself, I want parents, family members, caregivers, to really have meaningful connections with their child's Mm -hmm. teacher. The research shows us that that makes a difference in academic performance. It helps families understand what's going on in schools. And I thought, I need to start an educational consulting business. And I named it Our Words Matter because... As speech therapists, we know what we say, how we say it and the timing we say it in all matters. Mm -hmm. And so that really comes into play when teachers are engaging with parents, especially ones who are really looking, especially parents who are really looking to the teacher as that guiding that light. Tell me what I need to do for my child. Tell me how I can help my child best. Teachers need to understand how to convey those messages. And then parents also really um, benefit from knowing what questions to ask as well. Sometimes they just don't know. And I've seen mm-hmm. parents, um, I've had IEP, one IEP meeting that stood out to me was a parent for um, a child whose English is not their first language. It was about March in the school year. She, The child had been there since the start of the school year. We come to the IEP meeting in March. The parent sits back. Listen to the teacher give input. The teacher has a list of concerns regarding academic progress. And the mom says, I have been thinking that something is not right, that something's wrong, but I know that you have a lot of children in your class. My English isn't that good. And I didn't want to bother you. Hmm. That just like broke my heart. Like I wanted to say, bother her in a (laughs) productive way, but speak up but she was really looking for the teacher if the teacher hadn't have said these are my concerns and the mom would have I I think she would not have said anything so yeah Yeah. it's just the voice that parents have and the power that they have in their voice is is huge and so I want them to know the power that their voices have and then I want teachers to understand how they are in that role of authority and so opening up the doors to, to to that to establishing that engagement is super
0: important too. Yeah, that's great. And did you see between Virginia and El Paso? Yeah, El Paso. <laughs> yeah, El Paso. <laughs> um, did you see the different any differences with the families in terms of that authority figure? In terms of how they you know, like like the parent you just described, you mm-hmm. know, it's like the teacher is busy, and you know, and, and I just can't. Approach them. So I was wondering if, do you see cultural differences between the families in Virginia versus uh, El Paso and seeing the teacher as that authority figure or a principal whatever and how they felt approaching them?
2: Definitely I saw differences, especially for the public schools that were in the more affluent areas. It was, I have access all the time. I can come here. I can Ask for a meeting. I can demand a meeting. I can demand mm-hmm. a swing installed in the classroom. I I I'm, I'm listing out everything that I want. Even if it, even if the teacher is saying, you know, I really don't think that's necessary. I feel like we can take this approach. The parents in the in, um, the schools that I worked in, if they didn't agree, they voiced it, and we didn't leave the meeting until they got what they wanted. Right. That simple.
1: Right. And right. it's so interesting because that's not. I don't know. I think when you think of an IEP meeting, you think about kids getting the things that they need and that is how it should be. But I too have sat in those meetings and there's like, you know, that these two kids are the same, that they're so similar. Even one's doing a little, having a harder time, the other one. And you have one mom that's fighting and one mom that's not or dad. And you see the differences in the services they get. And it's, it's, a little bit of a broken not a little bit it's a broken system (laughs) in that way and it's it's hard to see that and to be like you said sitting in there on the other side of the table or even more i feel like as a contract worker because you're like i don't technically work for them so i feel even more like not wanting to just toe the line and say what everyone else
0: is (laughs) saying
1: (laughs) But you sit there in those meetings thinking, why didn't anyone tell them that? Why didn't that? Why wasn't that explained to the parent? Why wasn't the parent notified of that? And it's really interesting to be sitting in that. And then I have a sister that's also experienced the other side where every year she would have her kids progress reports. And they would say, Well, she scored load in, in reading, but I don't think that really shows what she can do. Then she gets to middle school and gets told, Did you know that your daughter can't read? And she's like, Yes, I've been telling you guys for years, was in the same district. So the district should have known that she couldn't yeah. read. Yeah. And it was just she she did the same thing. She's hired like private reading tutors and all mm-hmm. of these things and and it's the same thing. Like there are people that can't do that. There are people that don't have that wherewithal to know, to look outside of the school and they shouldn't have to look outside of the school. They should be able to look within the school. So it's so interesting how all of that works. And I totally agree with you for the need for it.
2: Yeah. So I've worked with some parents and coached them on just the basic things. When you, when you're getting ready to go into this meeting, take a notebook and a pen with you. Sit down at the table and as people start introducing themselves, right, start writing down names and their roles next to their names. Just that little action mm-hmm. sets mm-hmm. the tone for the meeting. And I have seen it happen where they, everybody in the meeting starts to sit up a little <laughs> bit further. <laughs>
1: <Yeah.
2: laughs> Being a little more mindful about their words. Yeah. And it, it shouldn't be that way. It, every meeting should be held and ran in in a similar way, meaning that parents are there, whether they have their notebook or they don't, that they're taken just as seriously and right. asked questions instead of things being kind of imposed on them, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I, yeah. I had a family years ago who used to, had a reputation of of having some issues with the school district, and I, I didn't work with them for that long, but they would, a uh, parent pulled me aside one day and said, you know, when I have these IEP meetings, I bring my next door neighbor in with me. And uh, he dresses up and brings in a, a briefcase. And I just sort of introduce him as my counsel. Love it. <laughs> he, oh,
2: by a, any means necessary. He, right. he pulls
0: out a, same thing, he pulls out a pad, and he starts writing. He never says a word, <laughs> the whole thing. and And she got everything she wanted. And she because they would be so afraid this is an an attorney who's going to sue them.
1: But she didn't Mm -hmm. say it was my lawyer. She said it was my counsel. (laughs) This is my counsel. (laughs) Uh,
2: Yeah. And it's sad that it has to that you have to go through, you know, those type of antics to get what you want. But like I said before, when you know the rules of the game, you can play it well. And when you don't, you 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 miss out. So I really want to I really want to use our words matter to help parents feel empowered to use their voices, and then on the contrary, helping teachers understand how critical their role really is. And I know they're, they're busy. Parents are busy. Teachers are busy. I've had teachers say, you know, the child comes back to school, their book bag hasn't even been looked at. All weekend, the same stuff mm-hmm. is in there on Monday morning. Mm-hmm. And then I talk with the parent, you know, as a speech therapist, we have that interaction with the parent frequently in the school system so i talk to the parent and they're like you know i'm working two three jobs i have two or three children it's uh, it's so busy they don't they don't have the time so you have one person in this partnership thinking the other person doesn't care and then you have the right. other person in that partnership thinking that the other doesn't care and then there's like this standoff and nothing meaningful happens it's just that gap between them just becomes wider and wider. And if we can just shift our perspective a little bit to see things from the other person's point of view, I think that would go a really long way in helping build some meaningful, meaningful partnerships.
1: Yeah. Along also- with that. Yeah. Along with that, I was thinking about your um your thesis that you were talking about and the matching up of demographics and how in telepractice our demographics can be completely different in the sense that we don't even live in the same place (laughs) that they do. And we're not at the school. Um, And I've been, I had last year, I had a high population of uh, Native Americans in the school that I worked at. Part of it was a a tribal Head Start program with the Indian tribe there. And then this year I have, I'm in California and have a very um, high Hispanic population, Latinx population. And I'm not either of those, nor have I lived in an area that has a high population of either of those. So what what do you suggest about making those connections and bridging that demographic and gap? Yeah, it's like we do in
2: our first sessions with our new students that we're working with, building that rapport, getting to know them as a person, as a family, taking time to ask questions about their interests things, hobbies, things that they have experienced in their life. And just, I find being really relatable can go a long way because we sit in a position of authority, right? As speech therapists, we're, we have our clinical expertise. We hold the sessions, we write the IEPs. And if we just, I've, I've experienced myself, if I just open up a little bit about, oh my gosh, this morning, getting my kid to, to school, it was a, a mess. The kitchen was a mess. You know, it was just a rough morning. I've had parents open up to me and now I'm more relatable. And so if you can find a way to just open up a little bit, since you are in that position of authority, I feel like it's on us to set that tone. And so asking the family members, you know, before or after your sessions, just you can lead in by sharing what you've done in the session or what you plan on doing in the session, how they can carry that over at home, asking them, is that something that they feel like they can do. And then opening up that dialogue just to, you know, share with me a little bit about what a typical week looks like for you. And then I can help you figure out some times to engage with our speech goals in a very natural way that's happening through the activities that you all are doing at home. So that relatability goes a really long way because, you know, it's like going into the doctor's office. You look to them as the authority. You Mm -hmm. take their words, you you heed their advice. And the moment that they open up just a little bit and just seem to relax and just give that kind of a window of relatability, even your own affect, you kind of just Mm -hmm. suck a little bit, you know? So it really does go a long way.
1: Yeah. I noticed that I had an IEP yesterday where the parent was kind of, you know, they have a younger child and they're like, how does this work with them doing online therapy? Like, I'm like, I have a four-year-old, I get it. I would probably ask the same questions of like, how are you keeping her looking at the screen? (laughs) And so, and I even just sharing that, I feel like they're like, okay, she, you know, like calmed down and said, okay, she's got little kids too. She knows how they are. And, and even just like sharing those expectations when I go into a session of being like, I don't expect them to just be sitting here staring at the screen the whole time and the parents panicking that they're not paying attention. I'm like, it's fine. Just let them play. Let them interact with you. And I too can see that whole, like, they just relax a little bit.
2: And so I um, I teach a, a speech sound disorders course for Emerson College in Boston. It's online. And that is one of the things that I really emphasize with the students each semester is just that relatability, giving themselves, you know, understanding the role that they're in and how they can get that buy in from parents by making those connections with Mm -hmm. them and hopefully making the progress in speech therapy that much better, but then also just making parents feel comfortable enough to come to them and ask. Those questions, those hard questions. Yeah. -hmm. Yeah.
0: Well, Dr. Williams, I think it's time. All right. For the most important part. I'm excited
2: about this part. I did my homework. (laughs) I Uh listened. (laughs) (laughs) Uh
0: Uh-oh, uh-oh. So, you know, our moment of Zen, we have three different lists. A, B, and C. Which one do you want? I think I'm going to choose C. Uh Oh, We haven't had a C in a while. That's good. That's good. Mix it up a little bit. Okay. So here we go. Uh, Let's see. First question. Where did you grow up and how did that affect who you became?
2: Oh, good question. So I was (laughs) a military brat. So I was born in Georgia, moved to Texas, lived in Germany, My third grade year, I'll never forget it. I went to three different schools, one in Georgia, one in Texas, finished it in Germany. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So I have really learned how to adapt to my surroundings, that chameleon kind of experience, because Mm -hmm. when you're moving that fast, you got to make friends quickly. We don't have time to do the silent parallel play. No, we got to get right in there and be friends quick because... We might be moving in a few months. I don't know. so I've I've really taken that with me throughout my life and I feel like I can enter into a space, kind of feel the energy, the vibe of the people, the environment, and blend in not in a way that makes me forget who I am as a person, but going back to that relatability, that piece that just helps me connect with people in in quicker ways. So I've taken that with me throughout my life for
0: sure. I think that's great. (laughs) Um, If money wasn't a factor, what would you do with your time?
2: If money wasn't a factor, I think I would take the time to start a school, a small school, starting out preschool age. That's one of my goals, but that takes a lot of time and (laughs) funding and all that great stuff. So if money wasn't an issue and I could devote all of my time to that, I would definitely, definitely do that. My son attends a Montessori school. He's attended Montessori since he was three. And I just love the Montessori philosophy principles. And I would love to just have a small school where you get to really know the families. like It's a true community Mm -hmm. and have it kind of align with Montessori principles, having that, you know, access to outdoor space, incorporating that into daily learning, that would be something that I would definitely do for sure.
0: My daughter, many years ago, she's married and having our grandchildren now. Uh, Anyway, when she was a kid, when she was about four, she went to a Montessori kind of, I hate to say it, Sort of a granola hippie school. <laughs> we loved <laughs> it. But but it was kind of out there. But they would always make uh make faces at me because every now and again, we didn't do it very often, but it like once a month. One treat that she liked to do was to go to uh Dunkin' Donuts and get the little donut holes, and she would bring those in with her. <laughs> <laughs> With the other kids literally eating granola, and she's eating donuts, her processed donut. I love it. And uh, those teachers would glare at me like I had just done the most terrible thing—poison, giving her poison, (laughs) eating these donuts. (laughs) But it was a special thing every now and again. But she loved it. anyway.
1: I I had a nephew in a Montessori school, and they had to talk to him about. Working on his own work because he started to just wander the room and check on everyone else. <laughs> Supervising <laughs> he was like, he was everyone like else. The supervisor, making sure they were all doing their work. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> uh, okay. Next question is: what was the last thing you searched for on Google?
2: On Google.
0: Or any search engine.
2: Okay. Um just today, I searched for a farmer's market that's here right outside the city of Atlanta, and they have yoga lessons there because I'm a yogi. I, I love yoga. Very there, nice. It's really big for me, and I signed me and my son up to volunteer at the farm, and we're going to oh, go nice. on Sunday. So that was the last thing that I that I Googled. I'm excited about it. The weather's really cool, nice too. So I'm
0: excited. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um. What do people misunderstand most about you? Mm -hmm.
2: I would say my facial expressions sometimes have to be very mindful. (laughs) (laughs) My face can speak what's on my mind and it might be misinterpreted in my own opinion. I might look like I'm not super interested, but really I'm I'm taking it all in and sometimes I can't do that with a smile on my face I'm, I'm processing so I feel like that would be something that is misunderstood a lot what my face is saying isn't always matching what's going on in my mind now sometimes it's very accurate sometimes <laughs> what, what presents is really what is going on behind the scenes but right. most times most times not so I try to be really thoughtful to at least keep a smirk on my, my face, even if I'm really trying to focus and take it all in. So I would say that.
0: Yeah. One of my grad students was was talking about another student saying that this other student had an RBF. Oh,
1: yes. <laughs> no, I, I know I, about R, that. <laughs> RBF. Yeah. Yes.
0: What are you talking about? I said, oh, oh. yeah, now I, I got gotcha. you.
1: I had a daughter with that we would call it resting baby face because ah. she just like was one of those babies that just like every picture I have of her, she's just like scowling at you.
2: <laughs> yeah, I have I've suffered I suffer from RBF occasionally for sure. Not the baby face.
0: <laughs> gotcha. Uh next question is how do you relax after a hard day?
2: Definitely meditate for sure. Oh, nice. And it's so interesting because I started meditating probably like six years ago now, six or seven years ago. And before that, you couldn't pay me to sit still for five or 10 minutes. I'm like, this is unproductive. I could be doing Mm -hmm. so many things within this time and Mm -hmm. learning the power of rest has been life-changing for me. So I will, uh, this is where I work in my space for teletherapy. I've laid right here on the floor. Next to my desk to just ground myself, and it just shifts my my mood. It shifts my mindset. It helps me be more present for my son. It helps me be more present for myself as sure. well. So meditation for sure.
0: That's awesome. If you haven't
2: tried it, you should try it. Five minutes. Mm-hmm. So like, I can't. I'll think about other stuff. That's okay. Sure. Because that's how we are. That's how I was at the beginning too. Five minutes. I'm like peeking at the clock like it's almost <laughs> over. <laughs> this is the longest 5 minutes ever. And then you learn how to settle into mm-hmm. the stillness and it is very restorative
1: for sure. I
0: I do it sporla- sporadically. I'm I'm trying to get better at a regular schedule. And I'm I'm making progress, but I'm I'm getting closer. So, but I I agree with you 100%. It's it's there's nothing like it.
2: No, it's perfect. Yes. It
0: Um, let's see what challenge in life shaped you the most. Hmm.
2: I would say becoming a mom, having my son in 2015, it helped me look more at more inward, I would say, so that I made sure I showed up for him in a positive way. And I still do that. He's eight now, He's eight years old. And I still do that now. I, I have to. I feel a a sense of responsibility to show him, you know, mistakes happen and then Mm -hmm. this is how we bounce back from them. So really just taking what I've learned in my life has helped me, I think, be a better mom for him so that he doesn't think I do everything right all the time. Because I guarantee you I don't. And the power of saying I'm sorry and owning up to mistakes that you've made. I'm sorry I, I raised my voice at you earlier. You know, I was really frustrated about something else. And Mm -hmm. I I should have done that. And he'll say, thank you. And then later on down the line, he might lose himself for a moment and raise his voice at me. And he'll come back to me later and say, you know what, mommy, I'm so sorry I raised my voice at you. I was Mm -hmm. really frustrated about XYZ. So having him has really been a life-changing experience, just helping me be very aware of myself.
0: Very good. I think children are probably the biggest thing that's going to change your life. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, When are you most productive?
2: Mm, In the morning. (laughs) Morning. That afternoon slump is real. So in the morning, I'm I'm an early riser. I work out in the morning. My thoughts are, I can plan and execute so well in the morning. And then about two o'clock every day Mm -hmm. is where I can feel the energy lowering and I'll just take a couple of sips of a little energy drink so I can get through the rest of the day or have some coffee. But in the morning, that is when I am definitely the most productive, for sure.
0: Uh, Me as well. I'm right with you. Um, What's your favorite comfort food? Junk food. (laughs) (laughs) I'm such a junk food junkie. Any, any, Any favorite junk foods?
2: Sour Patch Kids and pretzels. It's just real basic. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that That's a combination there.
2: Yeah, they're sweet and you're salty. Sweet and salty, yeah.
0: I, I get okay. it, I get it's it. A little
2: sour, yeah. Sour thrown in. <laughs> and wash it down with a little LaCroix, some sparkling water. It yeah. just balances it right out. <laughs> I, need
1: to, I would need to add some chocolate in there, too, and then you'd have, you know, like the trifecta. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Chase it with a Red Bull or something to keep that energy going. Um, let's see, what was the oh, what, okay. what 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 was the best concert or live performance you've ever attended?
2: Easy peasy, hands down, Beyonce. I saw her. Oh, that would, that, be, that would
1: be. That would be.
2: Yeah amazing amazing i went with my sister and my best friend from middle school and we had the time of her life just singing in this in the stands mm-hmm. i was out of breath so i don't know how she <laughs> was on stage for two and a half hours singing and dancing and all of that so the best the best concert i've been to for sure
0: <laughs> i i heard she's releasing a a concert film as well oh
2: yeah
0: <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, last question. If heaven exists, what do you want to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Hmm.
2: I want him to say, well done, Tiffany. You took the life I gave you and you made the most of it. Well
0: done. Very good. Gosh. Well, Tiffany, I think he will definitely, he, she, whatever it is, will definitely <laughs> say that. So. Thanks. But thank you for joining us, and uh, we wish you the best of luck in everything that you're doing, and you'll have to come back and give us a an update on, yeah. on everything that's happening at yeah, some point. It
2: will be my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me today. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you. Well, that was Dr. Tiffany Williams, and I want to thank Tiffany for joining us on the podcast. Those of us who have worked in the schools know the relationship between the educators the SLPs and other related service providers, and the parents, of course, that relationship is critical and really underpins the academic and social-emotional success of the child. So I think Tiffany is doing some really great work. And like she said, our words matter. And you matter to us here at telepractice today. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you don't mind, do us a favor and invite three friends or colleagues or people you know to subscribe to the podcast. That would be so helpful, and we'd really, really appreciate it. And until next week, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.